The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Cricket Albertson. Welcome back. So fun to be able to be together today and to study Jesus, discovering the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's come to do in our lives and in the lives of all those that we love and carry in our hearts. So I want us to look at the story of the paralytic, which is in Mark 2. But before we do that, I want to set a a little bit of the context. Um, And the way we can do that is by looking at the first three verses of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, look at Mark 1, verses 1 to 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. I have been reading a book called God Crucified by Richard Balcom. And in that book, he explains what Second Temple Judaism was and what it was expecting in their Messiah. And it helped me understand the Gospel of Mark. So basically... The, the Jews, uh, there was a beautiful nation and a powerful nation, and God was blessing. And then the people turned away. Remember in the Kings and Chronicles, the people turned away and the Kings turned away from following after God. And so then God sent them into exile. And then after 70 years, remember the beautiful story that all of a sudden God says, I'm going to make a way for you to go home and I'm going to make a way for you to rebuild the temple. And so this little band of a, a really motley crude comes back to Jerusalem and says, we're going to rebuild, we're going to rebuild the temple. And then God says, and I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in this temple. It's not as big. It's not as beautiful. It's not as glorious as the one um, that was built in Solomon's day, but I'm going to come and inhabit this temple. And the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the first because of my indwelling presence. And so that's, he talks about this in Zechariah too. And he says, enlarge your borders because I am coming. And this and the glory will be so great you'll not be able to contain it. And so the second temple Judaism, the set the people that gathered around the second temple and said, We are God's people. What does it look like? It was the pro- the prophet Isaiah who became for them kind of the word the the, the word that defined who they were as a people and who their God was. And so between Isaiah 40 and 66, you find Isaiah laying out, our God is different than any other God in the whole world. And these people had just lived in Babylon. They knew as they came back, they knew that God, their God was radically different from the gods worshiped by other nations. Now they had firsthand experience with that. So they came back and said, who is this God? And what is he like? And it was in Isaiah that they really understood understood their identity and what the coming of the Messiah was to be for them. And so it's very interesting because in a Jewish mind, there were two characteristics about their God that were different than all other um, religions in the world. He was the creator God, the creator God, and he was the ruler over everything. There was only one. He was the creator and he was the ruler over everything. And if you turn in Isaiah it turned to Isaiah 40. You'll find that probably the, or one of the best illustrations of this understanding of the, Jew, the Jewish understanding of who their God was. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and he makes the judges of the earth useless. 
Basically, there is a world and there is one who sits outside the circle of time and space. Now, to us, we understand that and it's no intellectual problem for us. But in that day, this is a revolutionary thought. So in it first occurred to, to Moses when God came and revealed it at the burning bush. And he says, I am that I am. And then all of a sudden... The, the people of Israel became a people around this God. And it was a God different than any other God in the world. They, all the other gods in, in um, the world were gods that were natural forces or they were personifications larger than life but human beings. So they loved and they had, they did everything that humans did. They just did it bigger and larger. And so, or they were a natural force. There was no understanding of one true God who sat above the earth and ruled it from outside time and space. That was a completely foreign concept in that that ancient Near Eastern mindset. But the Jews said, this is what identifies us as the people of God. We have a creator God and we have one who rules over all. And so there was this amazing sense. When the Messiah comes, they didn't necessarily understand him to be the son of God. They had no idea of that. But he would be the one who would represent this one who sits above the world and judges the world in righteousness. So Isaiah 40, and if you read Isaiah 40 to 66, it's a beautiful study of who this God is. Over and over it says, I I am and there is no other. I am and there is no other. God is trying to establish, I am different from all the other gods in the world. All the other gods of the world are idols. You make them, then you worship them. They're created and then worshiped. I am the creator, I create you. So this understanding of one true God was a radical idea in the history of the world. This was a, a brand new idea um, that d defined who the, the Jews were. And when they came back on from exile, there was no more idolatry in Israel. They held on to this understanding of God in a way that um, they held on to it as a life-giving um, aspect of their faith. So they, they did not, before the exile, they, they kept flirting with idolatry. After the exile, no more idolatry. This defines who we are. We worship this one true God that um, is described in Isaiah 40. So then the interesting thing is, when the gospel writers come to tell us who Jesus is, all four gospel writers do this. This is so fun to me. All four gospel writers do this. All four locate Jesus right smack dab in Isaiah 40. And this is with this, this um, prophecy about John the Baptist saying, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. This, these words are from Isaiah 40. And basically God's saying, I'm going to come and comfort you. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to break forth in your midst. And basically, there is going to be a new exodus. You've been in slavery. You've been in bondage. You've been in oppression. And I'm going to come again like I came into Egypt. And I'm going to lead you out. And I'm going to lead you into freedom. There's going to be a new day, a new exodus. And there's going to be a recreation. And Isaiah 40 to 66, this idea of God is doing something new. He's doing something new. He's coming into our midst and he's doing something new. That is what the gospel writers, all four of them, how they begin their gospels. They situate Jesus right smack dab in the middle of Isaiah 40 to 66. This creator God, this ruler God, this is the one we have come to talk about. This is the one who is coming to us and he's breaking in.
One of the beautiful things that comes in Mark's gospel that is not in all four of the gospels, but he actually says in, in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that word gospel, good news, also comes from Isaiah 40. Oh, this is Isaiah 49. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And this, as Mark says, I've got good news. The good news is here. The good news is that he has come. This one has come. We read Mark 1, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, and we say, oh yeah, oh yeah. But what Mark is actually trying to say to the Jewish people is this God, that we have worshiped has now broken in in the flesh and manifested himself to us and we have seen his face. It was such a revolutionary idea to the Jewish people they, they couldn't even get their minds around it that God himself would break in. And that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. God, This God who loved us this God who sits above the circle of the earth, this creator God has broken into human history in this story of Jesus. And I said, here is my son. I am breaking into your reality. All the other religions of the world are an effort to find God, to find ourselves, to understand the meaning of life, to, to, to work at it, to struggle for it. Christianity only is the, is the religion that says God breaks in into our reality and says, you want to know me? Here, here I am. You want to see what God looks like with a face on? Here he is in the person of Jesus. And that's what Mark is trying to communicate by situating this story um, in Isaiah 40. And then you'll find all these references all throughout, all throughout the Gospels and then all throughout the New Testament. And there are three specifically that are super important to be aware of. The first one comes in, in the Gospel of John. And basically, you know this. In the Gospel of John, there are seven references to, to Jesus as the I am. And Exodus and Deuteronomy, there are seven references to God by his name, Anihu, um, ego ami, two different versions, the, the third person and the first person, I am that I am. Seven references in Exodus and Deuteronomy, seven references in John where Jesus says, actually, I am the I am. And maybe the greatest statement ever, ever made before Abraham was, I am, identifying himself with this creator God. This was absolutely revolutionary in all intellectual thought and in all spiritual thought and in the Jewish mindset. This blew their minds. How could this be so? And um, so that first in John, second you find in Philippians, Philippians 2. And remember, in the middle of that chapter, um, Paul Paul um, quotes this hymn of praise. Um, and it may be that Paul wrote it. It may have been a hymn from the early church. Um, Let this mind be you in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 63 says, um, let me find it really quickly. Isaiah 63, this passage comes from, um, this passage comes from Isaiah 63. Oh, I can't find it right now, but there's a passage in Isaiah 63 where it talks about, um, and he, every knee shall bow. God is coming and to him every knee shall bow. So Paul makes this intentional statement that this one to whom all knees bow is Jesus. And Jesus is identified with this creator God who made himself known to Moses and to the Israelites. And then in Revelation 7, you have in the middle of the throne of God, there is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so the lamb, the lamb that is slain is, is, a, is a, a symbol of the... Ex, um, of the Passover, right? Where the lamb was slain. And as they were leaving Egypt and going into the promised land, God says, there's got to be a lamb that's slain in order to set my people free. And then that is the lamb that is on the throne of God in Revelation 7. And that is the one who is worshiped and who is adored. And all the hymns of praise in Revelation are to the lamb. And these are the indications from, so as the Jewish people say, who is Jesus? And then they say, wait a minute, this Jesus is the same as our creator God. How can this be? And some of the greatest conversations in, in human history took place as they wrestled with these questions and tried to work out what a doctrine of the Trinity actually means. What does it mean that God has a son? I remember hearing one time on um, a news show and it was late at night and um, it was Larry King Live, and he was about to retire. And they were talking to him about all the interviews he had ever had. And then they said to him, um, "What if you could ask one? If you could ask God one question, what would it be?" And he said, "Do you have a son?" And this is the question that the Jewish people are trying to figure out. And this is what Mark is trying to say: God has a son, and He's come to us in the person of Jesus. And that is how I want us to understand the story of the paralytic. So if you have your Bibles, turn, turn to chapter 2. Again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached to them. And then he came to them, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within him themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all. 
so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This was the story that so captured my mind as I was sitting in that bathroom in Kalamazoo reading Mark. Because all of a sudden in my mind, as I read this story, it seemed to come alive to me. God comes to make what is wrong right. He comes to make all that is wrong with me and all that is wrong with our world right. And then as I began to research and understand what God is actually saying through the person of Jesus here, I found myself lost in wonder because I love it. One of the greatest declarations up to this point, the greatest declaration Jesus has made about himself, he makes in a little house, a crowded house in Capernaum. And what you find is he's, he's speaking at the end of Mark one, they're bringing Jesus the sick and the demon possessed and Jesus is taking care of them all. And then he says to them, let's go away from here. I need to preach. I need to tell them who I am. I need to tell the good news. So he had gone away to Capernaum and this is where he was teaching. He was doing what he felt God wanted him to do, what he was called to do. And so many people came to hear him that there was no room anywhere in the house. I love that. They were all listening. They weren't all friendly. I mean, you had uh, Pharisees and scribes who were coming to check this guy out, um, though they probably didn't know enough about him to be really hostile yet. So, but anyway, you have this whole house full of people and Jesus explaining and teaching about who he was. And then all of a sudden, you got these four friends and they're bringing the paralytic. Now, I like to think about who this paralytic could have been. So in my mind, as I was kind of trying to recreate the story, my guess is that this was not a man born paralyzed. This was a man who had been an active, um, an active member of society. He was working. He had brothers. He had co-workers. And he, he was part of life because there were four close friends who were saying, hey, we got to get this guy to Jesus. And then Jesus calls him son. So this guy's not very old. Jesus is 30. This, this, he might be a, a teenager in his early 20s. He's not, a young, he's not an old guy um, that's being brought to Jesus. And so the, the four friends bring, bring the paralytic to Jesus. They can't get in. Nobody's letting them in. And so they said, no problem. We're going to go up on the roof. And I love this because um, they go up on the roof and whether it's tile or thatch, they, they begin to take off the roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. And you may have seen, um, you may have been part of this. My, when I, my children were young, they went to a VBS and the VBS was on the miracles of Jesus. And so the end, at the end of um, the, the week, we went and heard them sing their songs and do their performance. And I will never forget the song about this, about this Bible story. The song was, tear the roof off, everybody, I've got to get to Jesus. And I remember my three kids, especially my daughter, I remember her singing and doing all the motions. And it was like they were trying to grab the roof. Everybody grab the roof off. We've got to see Jesus. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. And I sat there and cried the urgency there is one in this house who can meet our need. And what can we do to get to him? And I think sometimes he's saying to, to my heart, would you carry that same urgency to get to me in your heart? Are your needs so great? And is your real, recognition of who I am so real and so true that you're willing to tear the roof off if that's what it takes to get to me or to get your loved one to me? And I love what happens because they let their friend down 
their young friend down right in front of Jesus. And so Jesus is doing what he's called to do. And then this is a major interruption, of course, major interruption. And I love what he does with the major interruption because he welcomes it. He welcomes the interruption and then he uses it as an opportunity not only to heal this boy, not only forgive this boy's sin, but to make the first major revelation about who he is. And so when Jesus, this is what I love in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, I love this because it was the faith of the four men. It was not the faith of the paralytic. And I'm sure he'd been injured long enough and hurt long enough that whether he had faith to believe in Jesus, we don't know. But we know his friends thought, hey, there's one and we think he can heal our friend and we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. And do you know, sometimes I think when we carry people in our hearts, our children and our families and our, our communities, you know what Jesus did? Jesus looked first to them. And when he saw their faith and the intent of their heart, then he turns and speaks to the paralytic. He didn't look at the paralytic's faith. He didn't look at the paralytic's need. He looked at the faith of the ones who brought him. And I was thinking about as I pray for my children, as I pray for the burdens that are on my heart, do I, do I come to Jesus with absolute confidence? You are the one to meet this need and I believe it and I'm willing to do everything to get this one to you. And then Jesus looks and says, Cricket, I see your heart and I see your, your spirit. I see your trust of me. And then he turns to the one with a need. That is the heart of intercession that the one, we bring people to Jesus, believing he's the answer, and then Jesus has a doorway into their lives. And so then he turns to the paralytic, and he says just the most surprising thing he could have said, son, your sins are forgiven. And I laughed a little bit. I have a 14-year-old son and an almost 18-year-old son, and I thought of them, if it was my 18-year-old son lying on that mat, being let down in front of Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine my son saying, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't even know what you're doing. And I, we came here because of my legs. I don't think the paralytic understood it. I'm for sure his friends didn't understand it. We knew, we know that you're the one who can heal him. We saw you do it um, in Nazareth. Now, why are you saying his sins are forgiven? And I can, I can just imagine them looking to each other as they're looking down from the roof, look, looking down on Jesus from the roof. What is he talking about? There's only one group of people in the room that understands what he's saying. There's only one, one group of people that clearly says, wait a minute. This guy is, is claiming equality and the authority that only God has. And it's the Pharisees. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And God and Jesus says, and Jesus looks at him and says, why are you questioning this in your heart? Who, um, which is easier to say? Is it easier to heal the body or is it easier to heal the soul, soul of a man? And they said, these are things that only God can do. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. And Jesus claims his authority as the creator God, as the one who rules over the human body, over the human person. And he says, this is who I am. And this is the first major claim like this that Jesus makes in any of the gospels. And they are astounded and horrified by the seeming blasphemy that Jesus would equate himself with God himself. And Jesus says, he, and Jesus uses the example to say, this is who I am and I will prove it to you. 
Do you know what? Jesus doesn't always prove himself to us. He is who he is. And sometimes he just comes into our lives and says, will you trust me? And will you bend the knee? But this, he gave the Pharisees an opportunity. He said, let me prove myself to you. You don't have to just, this is a a radical shift in your whole worldview. You don't even just have to take my word. I will prove it to you by what I do next. He says, son, arise, take up your bed and go home. And the boy jumped up, grabbed his bed and ran out of the house. And you can almost imagine that it happened so quickly and the guy was, the, the young man was so surprised, ran out of his house, em, embraced his friends, did a cheer, ran down the street to his mom. And he was probably in the kitchen with his mom before he realized, wait, who was that? What did he just do? And then Jesus is there with the Pharisees and they have to come to grips with this one who says, I can forgive sins. This is the one also who can heal the body. And that's what Jesus wants to say to us. I come in as Lord of all. I come in as the Son of God himself, the one who sits above the whole earth. I come in as his face and I say to you, I am Lord of all. And you have the option to acknowledge me or you have the the option to reject me. And if you walk away from me, you walk into death and you walk into darkness because I am life itself. My grandfather, when he was, one of my favorite stories about him was when he was a young boy, he um, stole a dollar from his mama's purse. They were buying Tootsie Rolls at school and he didn't have any money, so he wanted Tootsie Rolls to give away at recess. So he stole a dollar from his mama's purse and he went out and walked down the street. And when he came back and he said, Mom, look what I found on the sidewalk. And he, and he showed his dollar. And uh, then they sat down to eat breakfast. His mama didn't say anything. There were five kids in the family. And after, during breakfast, she said, Honey, you all go to school. Dennis won't be joining you. He's not feeling very well today. And uh, Papa said immediately he wasn't feeling very well. And so she said, um, Dennis, I want for you to wait for me in the living room until I finish the dishes. And I'm sure she was praying as she finished the dishes. And then she went in and she said to him, Dennis, I know you stole the dollar from my purse. And what grieves me is that we don't have enough money for extras. We don't have enough money for you to buy Tootsie Rolls. But she said, honey, what grieves me even more is that you've hurt, you've lied, you've hurt the heart of Jesus. And the one who is your best friend, you have hurt. And Papa said the way that she put it in terms of my relationship with Jesus, put all of morality and ethics into perspective. And as Papa got older and older, this is the story he kept referring to, that ultimately what everyone will have to meet is the person of Jesus. What are we going to do with Jesus? He's Lord of all. He is the one who comes and says, um, I am the one who's coming to bring salvation, like Isaiah 40 says. And what we do with Jesus determines what we do with life. Let me find my... uh, The Lord God shall come with a strong arm, and his, his arm shall rule for him. His reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his people. He will gather his lambs. He will carry them, and gently lead those who are young. And Jesus was saying to those Pharisees in this room, I have come. The one whom you've been waiting for has come. Now what are you going to do?
And it's funny because everyone in the house were astonished. In verse 12, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. All of the ones in the house were open, except the Pharisees. And they began, they began the process of hostility and rejection and eventually began to plot and plan for his destruction. They came face to face with Jesus and they said, no, we're not willing to change our mental paradigm. We're not willing to go where acknowledging who you are is, is to take us. And that was the beauty of the early church. It was those, those statements, Jesus is Lord, that people were willing to give their lives for. And that's what Mark is trying to say. He is Lord. And when we come and recognize him for who he is, then our lives change. And I was thinking, I was thinking, okay, Jesus, what do we do? We acknowledge you as Lord of all. We acknowledge you as Lord, not only of our bodies, but of our persons. What do we do then? And he brought to mind the story of um, the servants. And to one was given five talents, and one was given two, and one was given one. And they were required to go out and use those talents they'd been given for their master. And so Jesus said to me, Cricket, your life has been given. Look at it. Say, Jesus is Lord. Now what do I have? How am I made in such a way that I can worship him and honor him with my life? And for lots of years I spent time thinking, oh, I, I wish I had more. I wish I was this or I thought this or, oh... Oh, Jesus could really use me if I had the right this or that situation. And Jesus says, no, just look at what you have. Look at who you are and then say, how do I live in such a way that Jesus is glorified in my life? And Jesus said, I can take your life and make it a doorway just like those friends for me to display who I am to the world. And that is the joy of our life. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.